Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, like maybe like you, I um uh, I I actually did pay attention to the um, impeachment hearings this week. It's it's this um little optimist that's buried deep inside me that thinks something interesting is going to happen soon. Got to. I will say this, um of co- there's no shortage of commentary on the hearings. I'm not going I'm, I'm not going to indulge in that. I thank you for your patience just in case I did, but that's that's what everybody did every day at those hearings. And I think it was more in hope than in actual gratitude. But I do want to say, I, it's hard to know these things you, if you don't have um, firsthand evidence that, that would require, I don't know, what are those things called? Witnesses. But I, I tend to doubt that uh, Donald Trump ever said to uh, any U.S. senator, uh, if you don't vote for me in this impeachment thing, your head will be on a pike or said it about them in the third person. Not because I don't think he, he feels that way. I just, knowing his present vocabulary, I don't think pike would be in it. Except maybe in a sandwich. Hello, welcome to the show.
here tonight And just laughing and holding on tight Lose our hearts in the music they play Let our worries fade away And to me You make me believe Our ship will come in Like a wish on the wind Well, if, it, if this isn't the show, I don't know what is. So it must be from the home of the homeless. And uh, I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you there, too. And now... Let me tell you about the bees. Yeah! Yeah! Also about the non-bees. Got to be fair. First to the bees. During the last 20 years, insecticides applied to U.S. agricultural landscapes have become significantly more toxic. Over 120-fold in some Midwestern states. Toxic to honeybees, that is, when ingested. That's according to a team of researchers who identified rising neonicotinoid seed treatments in corn and soy as the primary cause of this change. I don't eat any corn. I eat almost no corn. I eat no soy. I'm good with the bees. The study is the first to characterize the geographic patterns of insecticide toxicity to bees and reveal specific areas of the country where mitigation and conservation efforts could be focused. Like where the bees are. According to Christina Grosinger, this toxicity, she's at Penn State, by the way, if you want to contact her. This toxicity has increased during the same period in which widespread decline in pollinator populations and other insects have been documented. Quote, insecticides are important for managing insects that damage crops, but they can also affect other insect species, such as bees and other pollinators in the surrounding landscape. She says it's problematic there's such a dramatic increase in the total insecticide toxicity at a time when there's also so much concern about declines in populations of pollinating insects, because they also play a very critical role in agricultural production, as we know. They uh, generated separate estimates for contact-based toxic loads, as when a bee is sprayed directly, and oral-based toxic loads, like when a bee ingests the pollen or nectar of a plant that has recently been treated. The team found that pounds of insecticides applied decreased in most counties 
from 1997 to 2012, while contact-based B-toxic load remained relatively steady. But oral-based B-toxic load increased ninefold, on average, across the United States. That means uh, the uh, bees ate something, put something in the, in the pie hole that uh, was toxic to them. Neonicotinoid insecticides, which are unusually toxic to bees when they are ingested, are uh, the likely cause. Several studies have shown these seed treatments have neg- negligible benefits for most crops in most regions, said Grosinger. Unfortunately, she adds, and this is maybe the money quote, or the stinger, growers often don't have the option to purchase seeds without these treatments. They don't have choices in how to manage their crops, unquote meaning the seed companies are selling the seeds pre-treated with neonicotinoids. Sounds like market power to me, but it's not just bees. New research, according to the National Geographic, shows that mayflies are also in decline. Hence their name? No. Since 2012, mayfly populations have declined by more than 50% throughout the northern Mississippi and Lake Erie regions likely due to either pollution or and or algae, algae blooms. It's according to a study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Glad to see they're proceeding. The study revealed that between 2015 and 2019, populations of burrowing mayflies declined by, an, well, by 84% in western Lake Erie. In the nearby northern Mississippi River Basin, same period, they declined by 52%. The insects are an important link in the food chain. They're prey for a variety, I said prey for a variety of predators. They also transfer tons of nutrients from the water to the land, according to National Geographic. Well, they should know. Mayflies serve critical functions in both aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems, says Jason Hoverman, an ecologist who wasn't involved in the paper. Because of their important role as prey, reductions in their abundance can have cascading effects on consumers throughout the food web. Like the birds have nothing to eat. Levels of neonicotinoid pesticides have risen in recent years in Lake Erie and many fresh water systems in the Midwest. Lake Erie is also beset by algae blooms caused by excess runoff, runoff of fertilizers and other nutrient-laden pollutants. Mmm, nutrients. These blooms can result in dead zones, which are toxic for bottom-dwelling creatures like mayfly nymphs. So next time you want to describe a bottom-dwelling creature, you've got a new metaphor, ladies and gentlemen. You're welcome. It's likely, says uh, an ecologist at the University of Sydney, down under, Francisco Sanchez-Bio, it's likely that other aquatic insect species may also be undergoing the same declines for the same reasons. The inevitable consequence is the decline of populations of insect-eating birds, frogs, bats, and fish in those regions. Studies around the world have shown alarming declines of a wide variety of insects. A study published in Biological Conservation Journal last April suggested that 40% of all insect species are in decline and could die out in the coming decades. Didn't we all wish for that when we were kids? Neonics are notorious for their toxicity to aquatic insects, and mayflies appear to be particularly susceptible to them, according to the paper. Another recent study found that neonicotinoid use in a Japanese lake led to the decline of water-dwelling invertebrates 
and a subsequent collapse in populations of two commercially important fish species that ate them. This research adds to the growing list of studies that show substantial declines in insect populations, according to one of the ecologists quoted by the National Geographic. One of the most common insecticides used for landscaping, lawn care, and agriculture has been found in Long Island groundwater. Scientists don't know whether the chemical is dangerous to humans. Imidacloprid, sold at stores like Home Depot, as well as Amazon, is a neonicotinoid. Home Depot, more doing, more killing. While more testing needs to be conducted in New York, results suggest the the risk of contaminated drinking water may be highest on Long Island, where imidacloprid alone showed up in nearly a third of recent samples and in areas that get their drinking water from surface water, such as New York City. How many times have you heard New York City people say, we got the best water, it's just a... It's enough for that. Not just the bees, ladies and gentlemen, anymore. It's the people, too. And now... We've got the ultra-modern knack Of getting oil from the deepest crack So give the boys just a bit of slack And say a hearty what the frack Justin Nobel has spent more than a year and a half researching and writing on radioactivity in fracking waste. This report came out in Rolling Stone. When a well is drilled, it produces a ton of brine. A ton of brine to you, everybody. A salty substance that comes out of the ground. Shale wells can produce as much as ten times more brine than oil and gas. The uh, oil and gas are useful at least so far, the brine needs to be hauled somewhere for disposal. But the brine can be radioactive. Nobel writes, radioactive brine may be dramatically increasing the risk of cancer for people who come in contact with it, like the workers who handle the waste, but also, you see, the brine is used for de-icing roads. So municipalities are essentially spreading radioactivity all over roads in various parts of the country. This is according to Yahoo News of the oil industry. Oil oil field equipment is also repurposed. Rolling Stone spoke with a Louisiana inspector who saw a child sitting on a fence that was so radioactive that someone might receive a full year's dose in a single hour. And, of course, the industry is barely regulated at all when it comes to handling radioactive substances. Why would they be in that? Officials at the EPA and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission sounded perplexed when Nobel asked questions to them about the risk, each indicating they weren't responsible for regulating radioactivity in the oil and gas industry. This could be a financial story as well as an environmental one. This is a whole aspect of the oil and gas industry that's mostly unregulated, underreported, and largely unknown to the public. And it could turn into a massive liability for the industry if local, state, or the federal government ever decided to get serious about it. The story of fracking is only a little over a decade old. That's how long it's the shale oil miracle has been with us. With each passing, passing year, the science surrounding the health risks grows more damning. 
Some presidential candidates are already calling for a ban on fracking, but, of course, those are just Democrats. And now, news of bad banks. Well, one of the worst has been Wells Fargo. And here's real news, that is to say something you don't hear every day. The former chief executive of Wells Fargo, John Stumpf, is going to have to pay $17.5 million to settle charges over the bank's fake accounts scandal, one of their, one of their many scandals. He was also banned from working in the financial industry in any manner for life. A rare example of a top banking executive being personally punished for failing to stop misconduct, at least in the United States. I think bankers went to jail in one country after the 2008 thing. That was, ladies and gentlemen, in Iceland. The charges came after it was revealed millions of fake bank accounts had been set up to meet sales targets. Well, what better... In August 2017, the lender set up to 3.5 million accounts may have been created for customers without their permissions. Over a period of eight years, Stump's lifetime ban is more severe than anything faced by financial industry execs in the wake of the financial crisis way back when. When he left the bank in 2016 after the scandal was first revealed, at the time it was reported he had walked away from the bank with $130 million. No, no, that they paid him. But uh, this, this is going to be just a little dent in that. A little more than 10%. It's fair. In 2018, Wells Fargo itself was fined a record $1 billion by two U.S. regulators to resolve investigations into forced purchase of car insurance and uh, breaches in Morgan mortgage lending regulations. Penalties imposed by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Why do we have one of those? And the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. At least uh, exerted some comptroll. And the bank was also ordered to reimburse customers. But uh, the agreement by Wells Fargo occurred without the bank having to admit any wrongdoing. Just out of the, just out of the goodness of their till. Now, ladies and gentlemen, news of uh, the land of fifteen thousand princes, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. UN human rights experts have demanded an immediate investigation into allegations that MBS, Saudi Arabia's crime, <laughs> crown prince, how did that happen? Hacked the phone of Amazon boss Jeff Bezos. And, it, and the hack was delivered the next day. They said Mohammed bin Salman should also be investigated for, continue, quote, continuous direct and personal efforts to target perceived opponents, unquote. The kingdom's U.S. embassy has denied the absurd story, but the independent U.N. experts, the special rapporteur on summary executions and extrajudicial killings, and the special rapporteur on three, freedom of expression, said the Crown Prince's possible involvement had to be investigated. Relations between Saudi Arabia and Bezos, who owns the Washington Post, worsened 
after Jamal Khashoggi, prominent critic of the Saudi government and one of the paper's columnists, was murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. How do these things happen? Bezos' phone was hacked after he received a WhatsApp message in May 2018 that was sent from the Crown Prince's personal account, according to the Guardian newspaper. An investigation into the data breach reportedly found the billionaire's phone began secretly sharing huge amounts of data after he received the encrypted video file from Mohammed bin Salman. The U.N. official said the information we received suggests the possible involvement of the Crown Prince in surveillance of Bezos in an effort to influence, if not silence, the Washington Post's reporting on Saudi Arabia. It said the allegations reinforced other reporting pointing to a pattern of targeted surveillance of perceived opponents and those of broader strategic importance to the Saudi authorities. They said there had been a massive clandestine online campaign against Bezos and Amazon, principally targeting him as the owner of the Washington Post. The statement by the two U.N. officials called for rigorous control of the unconstrained marketing, sale, and use of spyware, a little late. The Crown Prince and Bezos had reportedly exchanged phone numbers uh, in April of 2018. The uh, analysis cited by the experts says the Crown Prince sent WhatsApp messages to Bezos in which he allegedly revealed private and confidential information about Mr. Bezos' personal life. That was after the hack happened, and there was a massive and unprecedented exfiltration of data from Bezos' phone. That private information was then leaked to the National Enquirer. But it, uh, it's not just Jeff Bezos who is um, hanging hanging with the prince. A lot of celebrities. So watch out, celebrities. Watch out for the land of 15,000 princes, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Now, ladies and gentlemen, of course we were all in, this, in the United States concerned with the story about the Senate proceedings regarding the impeachment <laughs> President Trump and debating deep philosophical questions as can you have a trial without witnesses but another story caught my eye this week and I'm going to spend the next few minutes sharing with you the subject is torture I, I, I don't mean to listen to I mean that is the subject and um, here's what happens when you don't punish the people who who do these kinds of things that are against international law. Only a couple of years ago, former Vice President Dick Cheney, roused from his torpor, said the U.S. should restart its uh, torture, to, uh, excuse me, enhanced interrogation techniques. The uh, issue came up during the... Uh, confirmation hearing for CIA, current CIA director Gina Haspel, who had been involved in running a couple of the uh, torch, uh, enhanced interrogation operations. Cheney said, quote, I think the techniques we used were not torture. A lot of people try to call it that, but it wasn't deemed torture at the time. Unquote. He apparently is citing the legal opinion of John Yu, which was later withdrawn by the Justice Department. Cheney added, 
quote, people want to go back and try to rewrite history, but if it were my call, I'd do it again. And the, um, the torturer doesn't fall far from the tree. Representative Lynn Cheney praised uh, President Trump's reported decision to order a review of how the U.S. is handling the war on terror. She said, waterboarding works. And it helped in securing crucial information leading to the capture of Osama bin Laden. That is uh, characterized by Huffington Post as a debunked theory. The use of uh, waterboarding is a no-brainer. That's what uh, Dick Cheney said way back when. It's a no-brainer for me. But for a while there, I was criticized as being the vice president for torture. We don't torture. That's not what we're involved in, he said at the time. That, of course, was obviating by, obviated by the fact that the uh, Congress later banned waterboarding again. It was illegal under uh, U.S. jurisprudence way back when. So, uh, well, as early as 1901, according to The Guardian, a U.S. court-martial sentenced Major Edwin Glenn to 10 years hard labor for subjecting a suspected insurgent in the Philippines, which was, of course, a U.S. territory at the time, to the, quote, water cure, unquote. After World War II, U.S. military commissions successfully prosecuted as war criminals several Japanese soldiers who subjected U.S. prisoners to waterboarding. In 1968, a U.S. Army officer was court-martialed for helping to waterboard a prisoner in Vietnam. Mr. Cheney, your cell awaits. But that comes up, all this comes up, because this week, one of the two authors of the Enhanced Interrogation, I mean, Torture Program, finally testified in Guantanamo Bay at the U.S. uh, place there, where... uh, Preliminary proceedings have been proceeding very preliminarily in the trials of five suspects for years now. This is a pretrial matter. And um, I think maybe the only reporter who's covering it on a continuing basis, she started covering Guantanamo for the Miami Herald when the Herald cared. And uh, she is now writing for the New York Times, which I had to get help in uh, paying for her? I don't know. Produced with, in partnership, are her articles, with the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. So torture is a crisis, I guess. She reports that a heated dispute erupted in, at the proceedings at the court, such as, it, you know, it's a military commission, it's not a real court. It's like the Senate. Uh, at the pretrial hearings for the accused 9-11 uh, conspirators, there were attacks over the use of the word torture to describe the CIA techniques. The military judge declared he would need to consider the question before the start of the real trial next year. Judge Colonel Shane Cohen of the Air Force said it would be his role to decide before the trial whether what happened to the defendants in the CIA prison network was, quote, torture or, quote, cruel, inhuman, and degrading punishment, unquote. The opinion of the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, or even the President is not binding on me, he said, referring to legal memos from the Bush administration 
that authorized this stuff. With such a finding, a military commission judge could decide to exclude certain evidence from the trial, dismiss the case, or prevent the prosecution from seeking the death penalty. As I say, this all came up because James Mitchell, of the team of Mitchell and Jessen, who thought up the whole program, was uh, testifying for most of the week about the techniques used in uh, Guantanamo, and I think in uh, Afghanistan, too. Now, he's well known to have made public statements, I think in his book as well, uh, stating his pride in the job he and uh, Jessen did of devising the system reverse-engineered from techniques used uh, by the U.S. military to teach U.S. recruits, military folks, boys in those days, to withstand the possible, if not likely, Chinese, Chinese use of torture during the Korean War. They just reverse-engineered it and said, here you go. So, as I say, he all all along had um, expressed pride in the program. Now, on the stand in Guantanamo, he said um, they were waterboarding a, a Palestinian prisoner known as Abu Zabeda. He was cooperating, and there did not seem to him to be any more point in waterboarding him. But senior intelligence officials wanted him and his partners to press on. Please continue with the aggressive interrogation strategy for the next two to three weeks, their CIA supervisors cabled them. Mitchell and Chesson had sought permission several times to stop using the waterboard, he said, and had sent their bosses a disturbingly graphic video montage of what they had been doing. Mitchell said those directing the operation derided the psychologists as, quote, pussies, unquote, and believed that contrary to reports from the secret CIA prison in Thailand, where they were carrying out the interrogation, Zubeda could yield some information about what they feared were forthcoming terrorist attacks. If they wouldn't continue, their supervisors threatened to replace them with someone more aggressive. Oh, we wouldn't get to waterboard anymore, but we don't want to waterboard anymore. So, with the support of the CIA chief of station, Dr. Mitchell and his partner, John Bruce Jessen, summoned a delegation from headquarters to the site to see a real live version of of waterboarding. Describing the incident for the first time in court, he is thinking was, if you think you want us to waterboard him, then you're going to witness it. We're going to do it one more time and then never again. I don't want to use the word perfunctory about something that horrible, Dr. Mitchell said, as he described how he held a cloth over the Palestinian prisoner's face. Jessen did two 20-second pours, gave the prisoner time to catch his breath, did a couple of shorter pours, and then concluded with a final 40-second pour. Some of the folks who were watching were tearful, Dr. Mitchell said, including people who'd been there all along who didn't want to see him waterboarded again. I was tearful. I cry at dog food commercials, and it was particularly hard for me to do. I felt sorry for him. I thought it was unnecessary. He had agreed to work for us. He held up his end of the bargain. That's the now somewhat recalcitrant Dr. Mitchell. It was later disclosed that the man they waterboarded 83 times, Abu Zubaydah, had been mistakenly 
profiled as a senior al-Qaeda official. He had never he has never been charged with a crime. He's held as an indefinite detainee. Dr. Mitchell portrayed himself as a sometime whistleblower who tried to prevent full-time CIA interrogators from doing gratuitously cruel things at the black site. He uh, didn't use stress positions in his interrogations, he said, because they, quote, don't lend themselves very well to the kind of classical conditioning I was interested in, i.e. inducing learned helplessness in the victims. He said he didn't use the word torture because, quote, in my training, that is a determination that has to be made by a judge in court. Smooth move, baby. According to The Guardian, it's become clear during the hearings that Mitchell and Jetson, Jessen were just a small part of the infrastructure of torture with its own bureaucracy and personal rivalries. In his testimony, Mitchell railed repeatedly against the middle management who he believed was plotting against him. He became embroiled in a vicious turf war with a rival, the CIA interrogation chief, for mastery of the enhanced program. Each tried to use their links to CIA CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, to get the other removed from their post. In that struggle, the detainees were used as bargaining chips. The two men had them tortured for training or demonstration purposes, as indicated by the uh, one where all the folks were uh, welcomed down to watch it. Mitchell, in Afghanistan, in his Afghanistan period, felt that his rival was... uh, keeping him from leaving. He was a prisoner. And um, at one point when they were videotaping, when the CIA was videotaping the torture sessions, those videotapes, of course, have been destroyed, thanks to Gina Haspel, current head of the CIA. He said he and Jess and his partner were beginning to feel a bit exposed. They realized they were the only ones in the interrogation room while it was being tortured, uh, sorry, while it was being videoed, the only ones in the room not wearing a mask. I wanted the station chief on tape, said Mitchell. My mental calculus was that Dr. Jessen and I were the only ones on that tape. The station chief, in fact, did turn up to watch Abu Zubaydah being waterboarded, dressed as a guard, his face covered. Defense lawyers at Guantanamo have asked to examine 52 witnesses. They've so far been permitted to question only two, Mitchell and Jessen. Mitchell and Jessen signed up to teach a lesson to the CIA. Mitchell and Jessen producing, confessing. They could do it all day. A pair of shrinks for hire. They did nothing but aspire to make millions off of torture. Never did it before, but they had read up on the lore. But you get better when you do more, sure.
Rachel and Jessen making learned helplessness and the winding way to the truth. Mitchell and Jessen for the troops it got depressing, guarding the coffin and the booth. Just a pair of shrinks at large, helping to lead the charge to take the handcuffs off of torture. Now we know each one's name. They can dig their fame either in jail or on their porcher. Mitchell and Jessen for the customers of their wares Mitchell and Jessen no salad all dressing but after all no one cares Now news of the Olympic movement Produced by Jim Eversall the third. Well, you know, there are rules, and then there are rules. Athletes can be kicked out for uh, violating the drug rules, of course, even whole nations like Russia. But then there are rules that everybody just winks at. This is from InsideTheGames.biz. Statistical agency Grace Note has already predicted that the United States will win 119 medals this year in the Tokyo Olympics. This will put them at the top of a medals table, which is expressly forbidden by the International Olympic Committee. Rule 57 of the Olympic Charter includes the instruction that, quote, the IOC and the Olympic Organizing Committee shall not draw up a global ranking for any country, unquote. The Olympic oath requires an acceptance of the rules by everyone, you know, like the Senate. But this one Olympic regulation is disregarded on a regular basis by almost every National Olympic Committee. No one raises an eyebrow. Maybe they've had them shaved off. I'd... Gunil Lindbergh, General Secretary of the Association of National Olympic Committees, has admitted, quote, it is very difficult to avoid because people are interested in how their countries are doing and comparing with other countries. It is a rule, but it always happens, unquote. Baron de Coubertin, IOC president in the formative years of the Games, when they were baby games, would not have been amused. Quote, the true Olympic hero is, in my view, the individual adult male, unquote. Me too! To this day, Rule 6 of the Charter states, the Olympic Games are competitions between athletes in individual or team events and not between countries. They bring together the athletes selected by their representative National Olympic Committees whose entries have been accepted by the IOC. 
then IOC President Avery Brundage, then meaning not now, was so concerned he sent a letter to each National Olympic Committee. Quote, The International Olympic Committee resents efforts to use the Games as a political instrument or to pit one country against another, he wrote. We trust that you will do everything in your power to discourage the publication of scoring tables, which are quite worthless. Little did he know that the Olympics are a movement, and we all need one. Every day. Now, news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. The uh, Walt Disney Company, which bought Fox Studios, the uh, TV and movie production arm of Nice Corp., uh, announced last week they are changing the name of 20th Century Fox to 20th century, sorry, 21st century Fox to 21st century and Fox Searchlight to Searchlight Pictures. They are therefore scrubbing the name Fox from their entertainment properties, which they bought from Nice Corp because, um, apparently because of negative associations with other parts of the Nice Corp empire that are still named Fox. And James Murdoch, uh, Rupert's younger son, who is off on his own now, his older brother Lachlan is running Fox News and Fox Sports, the aforementioned Fox properties. Uh, James has come out criticizing Fox's Australian news operations. I think they have 70% of the print news market in Australia for taking a climate denial point of view in the wake of the catastrophic bushfires that are sweeping across southern Australia. I'm seeing series. Now, another slice of the world's favorite reality pie. Keeping up with the Murdochs. Dad, Cherry. We were just on our way to Clive's Grammy party. Hmm. But I don't think we were invited this year. Uh, maybe that's because you're not in the media business anymore. Uh, can we get in? Uh, sure, Catherine's upstairs. Actually, we uh, didn't come to talk to her. Oh, darling, she is really lovely. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I just don't happen to be an admirer of a more carbon neutral than thou attitude or something. Hey, sit down. Right. Where would you suggest? Oh, what happened to that lovely sofa? Uh, you... It's uh, being refilled with sustainable foam. But well, what are we supposed to sit on? These uh, tuffets? Well, take me two years to get back up. They're better for your back. I I, I can go get some it's, it's fine. We'll stand. We really don't want to be late for Clive's. It's always such a wonderful party. You remember? <laughs> I kind of do, yeah. Mm. Listen, James, I know a little something or two about media sniping, having been a master practitioner for a while. You have to step away from your role as media critical. You're hurting the brand. I heard that Kanye's going to perform. Perform what? 
That crappy music and he's... Someone said it's going to be a, an exorcism oh. with lots of dancers. Oh. You know what's hurting the brand? Mm. Australian properties becoming part of the bushfire story and the role of the freaking bad guy. Everybody south of Cairns knows we're on the wrong side of this. By everybody, you mean the people left in the Labour Party? <laughs> All two dozen of them? <laughs> Listen, your beef isn't with me, Mr James Murdoch. Mm. It's with the fella who's running the news operation. Big fella, you probably know him. Your older brother. Well, I'm going to sit down. These pooslets are so scrummy. No, I mean, by everybody, I mean even the Disney guys. They think our brand is so poisoned they're putting millions into making the movie companies foxless. Old news, mate. <laughs> that was in their plans from Jump Street to Reboot. I just said to me, first meeting, I don't want people going to the Cineplex thinking they're going to see two hours of Hannity. They could just simulcast his radio show. That's three hours, isn't it? Yes, they could, Pumpkin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, James, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, the poison brand the Disney people all wanted nothing to do with was yours, <laughs> which might be why you're not there now. <laughs> Maybe you could get my dear brother to write newer lines for you. I couldn't be happier not shepherding a new version of 101 Dalmatians. No, you're right. We're all very proud of your investment, making you a dominant force in Indian rugby TV rights. You know, Bob Iger's wife told us the new version was going to be of 1,001 Dalmatians. Can you imagine all those Dalmatians? We should go to your... I don't want to come in in the middle of the exorcism. That's no entrance at all. Right, pet. Fine. You can bring the car around now. Catherine sends her love. Keeping up with the Murdochs is a half note production. And now, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Deadline Philadelphia, the new Archbishop of Philadelphia, Nelson Perez, wasted a little time speaking directly to those affected by the sexual abuse scandal that continues to stain the Catholic Church. Quote, I and we continue to pray for your healing and support that you hold deep within our hearts. I don't know. That's a mangled quote if I ever saw one. Quote, it should have happened, should never have happened, and we are sorry. According to the AP, Pennsylvania's Roman Catholic Diocese has paid $84 million statewide to victims of sexual abuse, reported $32 million in Philadelphia alone. You know, Sonus, those um, speakers, you know, not Alexa, but speakers. Anyway, the CEO of the company sent an email to customers this week apologizing for his decision to stop offering new software features to older so-called legacy products. The company faced some backlash online in places like Reddit forums after Sonos announced earlier this week that older speakers would no longer receive software updates beginning in May. Quote, we heard you. We did not get this right from the start. My apologies for that and I wanted to personally assure you of the path forward. First, rest assured that come May when we end new software updates for our legacy products, they will continue to work just as they do today. We are not breaking them. We're not taking anything away. Secondly, we heard you on the issue of legacy products and modern products not being able to coexist in your home. We're working on a way to split your system so that modern products work together and get the latest features 
while legacy products work together and remain in their current state. Unquote, i.e. torpor. California Governor Gavin Newsom wants nearly half a million dollars per year to fund the Native American Council he created last June, according to public documents. Newsom established the Native American Truth and Healing Council last summer through an executive order that formally apologized for California government's slaughter of Native people. That's the word used by the Sacramento Bee. I prefer enhanced removal techniques, uh, as well as for family separations and forced servitude. I prefer slavery. The council will include representatives from California tribes who will compile stories from Native people, clarify the historical record of government violence against them. It's called a genocide, Newsom said in an event. No other, no, no other way to describe it. I'm sorry on behalf of the state of California. We'll try to search for a better word. No, he didn't say that. Amtrak officials, remember Amtrak? It's the rail thingy. They've apologized and said they're suspending apology, a policy after two wheelchair users in a group of five were charged $25,000 each. Five members of a nonprofit that advocates for disabled persons were traveling from Chicago to Bloomington, Illinois, paid a regular fare of $16. Oh, well, now, come on, that's a bargain. But when the group brought, bought tickets in December, Amtrak said accommodating two of the five would cost an additional $25,000 because cars would have to be added to the three-car train to accommodate everybody. Typically, according to the spokeswoman for the group, some seats in a car are removed to make room for wheelchair passengers at no additional charge. Members of the group reached out to Amtrak and were told the charges were part of a new policy. Amtrak apologized when the group's story went public and added three more cars for Wednesday's trip. And Amtrak said they're suspending the policy in question. Illinois sophomore guard, this is basketball now, college basketball. College basketball! Alan Griffin took to Twitter this week to apologize for stepping on Purdue guard Sasha Stefanovic during the Illini's 79-62 win at Purdue. After Stefanovic made a layup eight minutes into the game, the Purdue guard fell to the ground, and Griffin intentionally stepped on the guard's abdomen. After reviewing the play, the referees ejected Griffin. Quote, I sincerely apologize for my actions toward Sasha Stefanovic. What happened was out of character, does not reflect who I am as a person. Who are all these people who aren't reflecting who they are as a person? Sasha was kind enough to allow me to meet him after the game to offer my apologies. Griffin said, I'm deeply sorry that this incident caused a distraction and what was otherwise a great night for our team. I promised to coach Underwood and my teammates. I will be more mindful in the future. Said the coach, Brad Underwood, we don't condone any of that. That's not part of anything we're trying to do in our program. We don't step on them. We just kick them and move. A Chinese theme park came under fire recently after forcing a 165-pound pig to bungee jump before being slaughtered. This happened last week. Video footage of the disturbing incident at Red Wine Town Theme Park was shared widely across Chinese social media. Much outrage. That's how you know it's social media. In the video, the massive pig tied to a pole is carried up the stairs by two unidentified men. It was then attached to the bungee cord and pushed from the top. Loud squealing from the pig can be heard, as well as laughter in the background. Do pigs laugh? As the animal careens down and bounces back up multiple times. The event was called the Golden Pig Bungee Jump, according to the BBC, held to launch the park's new attraction 
that day. The park released an apologetic statement shortly after receiving the heavy criticism from social media. We sincerely accept netizens criticism and advice and apologize to the public. We will improve our marketing of the tourist site to provide tourists with better services. An unnamed park spokesperson, however, defended the event as just a bit of entertainment, according to the South China Morning Post. A pig bungee jumping is odd and attracts tourists and local residents to our site, said the employee. He added the pig was calm when it was being brought back up to the platform after its fall. It was then taken to slaughter. According to the park's unnamed owner, the event was a prayer of sorts to help drop pork prices. The Chinese are killing us. Deadline Boston, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker apologized this week after he used the word rant to describe remarks from U.S. Representative Ayanna Presley in an event honoring Martin Luther King Day. Presley, Boston Democrat, part of the squad, had delivered a speech about inequality and the unfinished fight for civil rights. She's Baker, a Republican, spoke immediately after Presley and jokingly told the crowd that he would have to follow, quote, that rant. (laughs) He quickly added he agreed with Presley's comments about celebrating diversity. He apologized for his word choice after the breakfast, according to his spokeswoman, Lizzie Guyton. Hey, Lizzie Guyton. One week after Houston Astros baseball players dodged questions regarding the electric sign-stealing, it's actually electronic sign-stealing scandal, that rocked Major League Baseball this offseason, bringing unwanted attention to the game during the offseason, I'm sure. Dallas Kuchel apologized for his part in the 2017 debacle. The new White Sox left-hander also expressed disappointment in the former teammate who broke a so-called clubhouse rule by sharing the Astros' dark secrets. He uh, also hinted Houston wasn't the only team guilty of stealing signs during the 2017 season. I'm not going to go into specific details, but during the course of the playoffs in 17, everybody was using multiple signs. It's just what the state of baseball was at that point in time. Was it against the rules? Yes, it was. And I personally am sorry for what's come about the whole situation. And finally, KFC, formerly Kentucky Fried Chicken, back when they were in Kentucky and Fried Chicken, has apologized for an ad in Australia that shows two young boys staring with their mouths agape as a woman adjusts her breasts. The apology was issued after Collective Shout, an Australian group which campaigns against the objectification of women, labeled the ad a regression to tired and archaic archaic stereotypes where young women are sexually objectified for male pleasure. (sighs) The 15-second ad features a young woman checking her reflection in the tinted windows of a parked car, apparently not realizing anyone is inside the vehicle. (laughs) As she adjusts her breasts in a low-cut top, the window lowers to show the boys staring open-mouthed as an older woman looks on disapprovingly from the driver's seat. The younger woman is also pictured checking out how her bottom looks in a very short play suit. I bet it looks great. Yeah, it has been running on TV down under. Excuse me. A short statement issued Tuesday had KFC saying, quote, We apologize if anyone was offended by our latest commercial. Our intention was not to stereotype women and young boys in a negative light. KFC has not confirmed whether or not it will stop using the ad. Apologies of the week. As always, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Well, sir, that's going to do it for this edition of the show. Sir and madam, I should say. Program returns next week at the same time over these same radio stations and on your other audio device of choice. Alexa, you are so dumb. Uh, at the time of your choosing. And it would be just like Alexa getting dumber. If you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk for help with today's broadcast, as well as to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for their help with today's broadcast. The email address for the program you can actually write me your thoughts on what you've just heard, and I'll actually read them. Or. You can go to my Twitter address. I'll tell you that in a moment. Anyway, the email address, playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Time for Valentine's Day. Wow, will she be thrilled. All at harryshearer.com, and I'm on Twitter at theharryshearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless. <laughs>